0: Save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I am your host Julia Kowlinska, and I'm here today with Laurence Coderre, who is an assistant professor of East Asian Studies at New York University. Uh, Laurence graduated from Harvard in 2007 with a degree in music and East Asian studies, Um, went on to also get a master's degree at Harvard and a PhD in modern Chinese literature from the University of California in Berkeley, where we actually met, our alma mater. Um, Before coming to NYU in 2016, she was also a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan's Lieberthal Rogel Center for Chinese Studies. Her areas of research um, and interest include, of course, Modern Chinese Cultural Studies, Material Culture, Socialism and Post-Socialism, the Cultural Revolution, Third World Internationalism, and Disability Studies. So good afternoon, Laurence. It's a pleasure to have you. And I'd like to start the interview with the traditional question for the New Books Network, which is, um, if you could tell us a little bit of how you got into the field um, and with whom you worked in the process of uh, getting your degree and developing this research project.
1: Well, first off, pleasure to be here. Um, looking forward to it. Um, I, I sort of caught the China bug um, during my... Uh, gap year before college um, and tr- came into the the um, realm of East Asian studies through uh, language study um, as so many people have um, and then through that process um, at Harvard I got to interact with. Um, Eileen Chow um, who's at Duke now um, in in more of the kind of film media side um, and David Wong um, on the more straight up lit side Um, and so those were my my main influences at Harvard I would say Um, and then at Berkeley, my main advisor was um, Andrew Jones, um, but my dissertation was also uh, under the purview of um, Justin Guidbo uh, in the music department who works on Caribbean popular musics. Um, But she she brought a really important or ethnomusicology, anthropological uh, flavor to align my my scholarship and inquiries. Um, And and so I'd say that those two, in addition to um, Sophie Volpe, who was my third committee member, uh, were really key to, to crafting uh, what ultimately became uh, this book project, but also how I think of the the field in general.
0: Wonderful. Uh, the diversity of advisors that you mentioned is certainly uh, very present in your book. Uh, it's one of the aspects of it that I enjoyed most. Sort of the 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 broad terrain that you're able to um, attack both conceptually and in terms of the wonderful primary sources that that you engage with. Um, so let's turn then to your book, of course, uh, Newborn Socialist Things, Materiality in Maoist China. Um, so perhaps we can start with a very kind of casual question, but one that interests me um, the cover. I actually, I I have found that Duke, which published your book, um, has had really great covers in in the past several years. And uh, I, I I believe I didn't see discussion of the cover in the body of the book. So if you could tell us a little bit more about this art piece, um, I believe by Xu Jen, uh, things I see every morning when I wake up and think of every night before I sleep. Yeah. Um. I.
1: I. We we sort of got to the point of. Um, looking for cover art um and um I sort of gave my input um just I I I did not want a kind of red orientalist um cover that was basically my my one um uh Quest, let's put it that way, because really they could have overruled me, but they um, they asked for my input, and that was basically what it was, which was you know I wanted to avoid putting Mao on the cover if at all possible. Um, so um, they they started looking at um, and playing around with the idea of putting. Uh, contemporary Chinese art on the cover instead, something that there was Chinese quote-unquote, um, that would speak to the, the meat of the book, the kind of conceptual work um, that I tried to do in the book, um, questions of materiality without being like hey I'm exotic and Chinese um, right which is sort of a tricky thing to do um, so this was one of the the pieces that was suggested and I really I, I love it I think it's great um, it's the the piece itself is really interesting. Um to me they're replicas of um supposedly Middle Eastern antiques. Um, right, that are all kind of mushed together in a big ball of wire and twine. Um and so it seemed emblematic in a sense of how I was trying to conceptualize um, newborn socialist things, both as things and not.
0: Yeah. Well, that brings us to to my first question um, that deals with the meat of the book, right? Let's uh, let's (laughs) untangle some of this tangle that we see on the cover. Um, What is a newborn socialist thing? I think that's a concept that many of our listeners will not have uh, heard of before.
1: Yeah, um, with good reason, I would say, um, it's a, a term um, that that's fairly common um, in Chinese, um to just refer to a kind of new fad, right? Like the latest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's still uh, in common parlance, Um, but if you look at uh, Mao era sources, um, you see a lot um, popping up during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution in particular, and so I was trying to figure out, like, what work this term was doing in the discourse Um, and it became clear to me that it was being used as a technical term um, that was more than just the latest fad that was actually supposed to refer to uh, things broadly construed that were in some way emblematic of the future to come. So they were, were harpenters or meant to be harpenters of the future utopia today. Right? Signs of progress in some sense. Um, and and there's this sort of a series of tests um that to be put to to kind of earn this mantle, a kind of status. Um, and so that, that to me was a very sort of interesting um, uh, framework in and of itself located right in the heart of socialism, right, as this liminal period that's prior to communism right so it's like pre-utopian um and and so it's in this this sort of no man's land where you have these retrograde um backward facing uh elements that are doing battle with what are supposedly uh, harbingers of the future. So all that, it falls under the rubric of newborn socialist things as a kind of technical historical usage. Um, Then what I did basically, um, which is the, the kind of purview of the literary scholar, I guess, um, as opposed to the hardcore historian, um, was that I, I took a certain amount of inspiration from what I understood um, this technical term to be aspiring to. That is, um, its capaciousness um, to uh, bring together uh, material objects, but also social formations in a way that was different and expressly countered to commodities. Um, And so that became a a way for me to think um, in historically inflected or historically inspired ways about what was going on uh, during this period. Um, And also to look specifically at the the related kind of nexus um, of commodities
0: under capitalism or under socialism? Uh, well, so this brings us to the thorny object of the socialist commodity. Uh, and your book is indeed in conversation with a lot of the research and conceptualization that has been developed about um, desire and consumption in Eastern European uh, socialisms. But uh, I believe one of the pioneering works that deals really with um, one of a a slew of recent works, I suppose, um, that are starting this field of dealing with uh, socialist things. Um, So if you could talk a little bit about uh, what works you're in conversation with uh, and where your book makes an intervention in the field of Chinese studies, and and begins to build into this new field of um, materiality studies of of mm-hmm. socialist China.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the 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 most basic intervention, in a way, is to just be like, hey, guys,
0: we're we're
1: here too. Um, that the the kind of Uh, quite um, sophisticated conversation that's been happening um, looking at um, the Eastern Bloc and Soviet Union consumer cultures um, and related materiality questions that discussion has really not looked at China like at all. <laughs> right? And so um, all of that kind of um, discussion about socialism and consumer culture has been operating within a very particular frame that it seems to me really needs to take China and Chinese claims to socialism into account to, to be able to hold any water about socialism or socialisms. Right? So, um, so partly the book Um, engages with people like Christina Kier and um, Christina Ferrari um, in order to say, people in China were dealing with all the same issues. Um, And sometimes they found similar solutions but sometimes not. Um, so you should, like, include us in your thinking. Um, that's kind of part of what's going on there. Uh, I think in in, in that regard. Um, it, within China studies, I think it's a little bit different. Um, where I see my intervention a little bit differently in the sense that um, uh, we we have a slightly different problem of problems, and um, that we tend as a field to be very empirically grounded um, and not necessarily um, push. Uh, our uh, empirical expertise um, to uh, conceptual um, levels, I guess. Um, And so it was really important for me to look at materials closely, um, but then to take analysis of those materials, uh, one, two, three steps to broader um, and more conceptually, theoretically focused. So I think that um, that aspect um, sort of helps facilitate the conversation from the other side, right? To say, you no, know, we can talk in similar terms as some of our colleagues are doing, working on Eastern Europe and the formers of it.
0: Yeah, great. So um, I guess one of the organizing conceptual issues is, of course, the socialist commodity itself. Um, so if you could. Uh, break that down a little bit for us and present listeners with the, the problem of the socialist commodity. And then we'll be able to um, see how you trace that problem throughout your book. We'll go through each chapter um, in which you trace really a media ecology of, of these newborn socialist things that overlap uncomfortably sometimes with the concept of the commodity.
1: Yeah. So, um, the, the socialist commodity is one of these really squishy, uncomfortable um, terms and ideas because by rights, it really shouldn't exist um, in the sense that the commodity form is the cornerstone of Marx's Analysis of capitalism. And one of the very few things that Marx and Engels talk about in specifics about what communism will look like is that it will be commodity free, right? There will not be. Commodities under communism, because, but um, the commodity form is grounded in alienated labor, um, and and so everything that the, that defines the commodity, for Marx, use value, exchange value, that duality, um, and, the effect of commodity fetishism um, that he describes um, under capitalism present a danger to historical progress and present a problem for socialist regimes um, in that They suggest that progress has not been achieved, on the one hand, um, and on the other, um, it's just a really basic kind of political-economic conundrum that even after the means of production have been... um, Taken over by the people and are no longer in private hands, Um, commodities still persist. Um, Right? So it's a conundrum. How do you explain that persistence? Um, And it's one that really doesn't have a kind of codified. Um, explanation uh, until Stalin decrees um, in 1951 a rationale that's pretty tenuous right but nonetheless is a rationale that in China at least everybody sort of pegs their pennies their hat on um, and provide a kind of theoretical fig leaf for explaining why commodities exist um, even as socialism um, eclipses capitalism, right, and history moves forward. So the Uh, kind of difficulty here is that the more advanced quote unquote um, China says it is the more um, intention um, the persistence of commodities is felt to be so newborn socialist things offer an alternative, right? A kind of a glimpse of the communist commodity-free future, a glimpse of sort of what will happen when commodities disappear. Um, and so it's that kind of tension that um, I wind up focusing on and trying to get at.
0: Great, wonderful, we'll come back to Stalin when we uh, reach chapter four, um, where we we learn about um, what the proper socialist commodity is uh, from the commodity itself, actually. So I'll just tease with that. But um, uh, I, before we be delve into um, each chapter, I just also wanted to ask a more conceptual question about the design of the book. Um, because you start in a very unlikely place, uh, as you yourself admit, with sound, which seems to be the most uh, difficult of objects, if we're talking about materiality. Um, mm-hmm. So I, yeah, just just if you could give our listeners um, a sense of how you decided to organize the book as you did, um, and then we'll we'll talk about what it is that you d- that you did. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, it was really difficult. Um, I, I shuffled the chapters around a fair, enough, fair amount. Um but in in the end I wanted um, to represent um, a a constellation of sorts, right? That that was um, in form related to I was thinking of newborn socialist things to begin with. So as we go through these chapters, um, in a minute you can sort of see that they're they're kind of all over the place, um, right? Different different kinds of objects, um, different kinds of materials um, that I'm engaging with. Um, all kind of requiring different um, analytical lenses to some degree and uh, varied methodologies. Um, that's part of the reason why the, the book overall is quite interdisciplinary in, in nature because I'm trying... To bring all of these different things together into relation with each other, um, and ultimately that's why I decided to start with sound, um, because absolutely right, there's this kind of um, ephemeral quality to sound, um, so much that we often think of it as immaterial, right, Um, and yet sound is about resonance um, and in that sense uh, is about relationality um, and uh, sympathetic resonance among other things. Um, And so sound from that perspective seemed like actually a pretty good place to start um, as a way to center the problem of relationality um, and materiality from the the get-go. So that's why I started there.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Um, uh, One of my favorite, actually, moments in in the book is the... um... The images in general, I think, are great, but the image that you have in at the beginning of this chapter with the uh, music-making machine of the future, which I believe is called from a book uh, called uh, Scientists Imagine the 21st Century, right? So uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, um, the sounds of the future, but also you make the case that the nation is, it is founded through sounding, right? So if you could talk a little bit about that, uh, the notion of socialist sound, right? And how sound creates certain spaces and what is sort of anticipated of sound and how new technologies um, emerge in your chapter to restructure those relationships.
1: Right, well, so um, as I sort of alluded to, I really want to focus on the the relational um, aspects of sound. Um, And as a result... I'm less interested in kind of um, isolating or pinpointing the asocialist sound in the the sense of a particular aesthetic mm-hmm. um, And instead, um, I became much more interested in sounding, right so processes and um, the effects of sound um, and sort ter- of playing sound uh, as a performative act or a series of performative acts. Um, and in turn, answering the question of what sound does, right? and what the things that it does, it, it creates space, it produces space um, in a a kind of productive geography. Um, And so once um, you start focusing on that aspect of sound, you quickly get into questions of broadcasting, uh, radio, loudspeakers, and uh, the kinds of technology that individuals had as broadcasters, um, including turntables um, and uh, LPs, um, either the kind of standard microgroove or a little bit later the uh, flexi disc. Right. And so, um, so I've Focus on these technologies as a way to think about sound as a productive um, mode of producing space, producing the nation, um, territorializing the nation that is making it. To real, quote unquote, um, in uh, space, in particular on the frontier um, and in these um, places of uh, imagined backwardness um, as a kind of civilizing expansionist process.
0: Yeah, indeed. And the frontier is a very uh, potent space, especially for the period of the cultural revolution, right? In which um, a lot of these technologies and interest in, in sounding technologies travel with uh, students who have been sent down, right? And, and you uh, another uh, picture that you have is a photograph of um, young women with their flexi discs in the fields, right? So the, the affordance of this, these new types of uh, portable sounds. Right, um, and their ability to colonize, and um, you know, we can use that word uh, not lightly, right? To to colonize these spaces that are inhabited by um, minorities, right? People who are not centrally uh, located, um, which actually also brings us, and in, in the beginning of chapter two, uh, you you show us how uh, commodities themselves, or well, socialist commodities, right, were displayed and and. Uh, brought into the frontier as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, this chapter, um, selling revolution, it's really about, at least in my reading, a kind of pedagogical customer service that is intended to teach people how to desire appropriately. Right. So if you could, um, I, I, I spoke a lot, but if you could unpack some of these issues that I just brought up, um, I would be very grateful. And as would our listeners.
1: No, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, which is a tricky business, right? Pun intended. Um, teaching desire, um, and so the, the, just a step back. The nexus here, um, to my mind, is that the the broadcaster, of ever pushing ever outward, um, on behalf of. So the nation um, as acoustic space uh, is traversing the same terrain, it turns out, as uh, itinerant retailers, right? So the civilizing um, impact and import of uh, media technologies, and I use civilizing with all its um as well um, right that that's going hand in glove with uh, the distribution of consumer goods um, in the shape of as you say socialist commodities so um as I described earlier, the commodity is a theoretical problem um and i talk about that uh, in those terms later in the book but um it's it's also a very concrete problem right that you are trying to simultaneously um distribute commodities and indeed um praising uh, and touting the ability to produce more, better, newer consumer goods okay, as a sign of modernization. So that's happening on the one hand. But on the other, you have the sense that commodities are bad, or at least potentially bad, because they're sort of capitalist. Ish, or at least they feel a capitalist Um, and certainly if to the degree that people are still buying and selling them with money um, in institutions that look fairly similar to the way they did prior to the revolution it's all a little uh, disconcerting um and, and it all of that, um, I argue in that chapter, basically falls to the retailers, the individual salespeople who are supposed to finesse this situation, at least sort of ideally, right? Um they're the ones who are supposed to determine uh, what is and is not appropriate to be purchased, to be desired, for what occasion? Um, Is it conspicuous consumption? Because that's a serious problem. Or is it trying to purchase something in order to meet a need? Right? And how do you tell? Well, that demands extreme kind of knowledge um, on the part of retailers um, about not only their products that they're trying to sell, but also their clientele, right? Um, and what makes their clients, their customers tick, in order to be able to guide them into making appropriate purchases, right? ideologically sound purchases um, within a socialist framework, even though it looks and feels capitalist, where right? everybody is like, no, no, it's socialist. So the kind of guarantor of that socialist um, aspect is the customer service um, interface, right? That That's where that works out or not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at, on the front lines of class struggle, so to speak, right? Yes. Um, and one of one of the examples you use in this chapter that caught my attention um, is the story from the Cultural Revolution, the Xiangyang Store, right? The sun-facing store. Mm-hmm. Um, very potent uh, title used used also in um, other stories. So, um, if you could tell us a little bit about the travails, right, of of the revolutionary. Clerk in this story, and and the the class struggle as it as it develops, um, and and the, one of the reasons I ask this is because um, in my own um, uh, reading and and watching of materials from Eastern Europe, um, it similar problems emerge. There is the emergence of criminality uh, in these settings of um, policed desires, or at least ta- taught desires. <laughs>
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. So one of the kind of major concerns, um, and like fault lines, um, is um, personal use versus um, purchasing things for black market resale um, and profiteering. Right. Um, because there are gaps in the official retail network and system, um, right? There are people on the frontier who can't get to, uh, or can't easily get to a department store. And so within the world, the diegesis of, China store, there is one of these sort of commodity deserts where um, profiteers have started setting up, right? They're they're acquiring goods and selling them at um, exorbitant prices. Uh, And so we have this, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, Sales clerk, um, who arrives um, with the, this wonderful spirit of revolution um, and she decides that she's going to take it upon herself to deliver goods, commodities from the store to this worker's village uh, nearby. So she Sets up a cart, um, and brings this sort of endless um, amount of products uh, with her, uh, and going to the to the village, and then she is of course beset by um, the class enemies, the profiteers, who um want to stop her from getting access to their customers, but also from finding them out. Uh, so she carries on this instance, really, of class struggle, right? Of finding these, who are described and couch as class enemies, right? Who are doing it wrong there, right? So as opposed to the, the vision of customer service done right, which is really all about um, policing, as you said, desire and channeling it appropriately um, and meeting the needs and appropriate wants of the proletariat um, first and foremost. Right. The flip side of that is all of these bad dudes who are taking upon themselves to steal from the state, which means stealing from the people Um, and then doing all kinds of hinky, sketchy things, Um, reselling, you know, instead of a pound, it's a little bit shy, right? So it's not a full measures on accurate weight or overcharging uh, or cutting, um, you know, spices or flour or whatever. Um, So injuring customers for the sake of of making a profit so they wind up, being the kind of um, long tail of capitalism um, that is duking it out with the vision of customer service and retail and therefore ultimately of the socialist commodity um, that is um, actually crucial to the historical progress um, that China has embarked on towards communism. because there's no way to get there without um, maintaining commodities in some form, to to manage them. And customer service is one way to to manage their circulation and consumption.
0: Indeed, and as you point out, serve the people uh, does use that same vocabulary, right? Fool. Uh, so, if we'll move on then to our next chapter about productivist display, um, there's it's a it's a it's a, a complex chapter. But one of the things that I found most fascinating is your discussion of the Jingdezhen ceramics uh, complex and the way in which this imperial uh, workshop based proto-factory system was actually uh, folded into the socialist enterprise. Um, and then, of course, the the products of Jingdezhen will, will actually come up as well in later chapters as the ceramic figures uh, of various types of models. So if you could introduce our readers to Jingdezhen and then their function under this new as a newborn socialist thing.
1: Right. So this chapter is <laughs> complex is very diplomatic um, it's a little schizoid uh, in the sense that um, I, I, I was interested the kind of from the previous chapter is okay what about situations where you don't interact with the human right what about window displays right just commodities on display as this, um, you know, locus classicus uh, for commodity fetishism, right? What could be more emblematic of the capitalist system than commodities in the department store window? So how do you manage that threat when you can't go through people um, and so ultimately, that brought me to the idea of uh, somehow you have to look at these commodities and understand them not as things to be consumed, right? But as things that um, are essentially odes to production, That's the idea of productivist display, which is like a heck of a trick, right, to pull off. Um, In fact, it doesn't really get pulled off, Um, but they try. Um, And so one area that I wanted to, to explore in relation to this was, in fact, porcelain. Right, which is, um, uh, among many other things, used uh, to create objects of display. Um, And ones, uh, you know, clearly associated with a certain elite um, cultural class. Um, So what, how do we understand the remaking of porcelain as a material, a kind of recasting of porcelain. Um, and then how can we to use that to better understand this sort of productivist gambit? So that that That's really what the chapter is about. Um, and what I discovered about Jindajan which is sort of the porcelain capital. It's what it calls itself. It's the porcelain capital of China is basically where the porcelain comes from. Um, it was where the um, imperial kilns were during the Qing and um, under a slightly different status beforehand, Um, but it's sort of the most famous porcelain making um, city um, in China, and um, it was remade, recast through processes of historiography. To start rewriting Jin Dijun's labor history in such a way that it could claim to be a proletarian city from way back, um, right? That wasn't an, um, an artisanal practice of factor of making but rather a kind of pre-modern assembly um, line-type situation. Um, So they were basically proletarian already, right? And therefore porcelain was made by revolutionary hands. Um, So it's a one route. It's essentially a historiographic route. Um, And then the other was to actually create these massive factories that were um, nationally owned and backed that made um, a big deal about their existence as factories that were built according to assembly line practices Um, And they claim to be mechanized or semi-mechanized. And that through this proximity with assembly line technologies, again, that was a way that not only was porcelain remade as a material, among others, including... You know, plastic um, and and fiberboard, um, but also a way to produce the proletariat in Xinjiang. Right there, they produce each other um, as kind of laboring worker subjects, um, and so basically, I tried to to, to look at that. Remaking and the, of the um, the very idea of what production is, right? Um, and what what counts as productive labor um, as a way to then um, bring that back to the question of how do you look at Something and read it, make it legible as labor products as opposed to consumer commodities, right? So that was sort of the idea of that
0: chapter. Yeah, uh, wonderful. Um, I also really enjoyed the uh, discussion of display during the cultural evolution or c- commodity display and um, the, how would I put it? correct addition of Mao into this display, right? Um, Which which works so well, because as you argue, he is basically a commodity himself at this point, um, an object of proper desire. Uh, But let us move on to our next chapter, uh, illuminating the commodity fetish. And here we will return briefly to Stalin, um, whose uh, articulation in the 1950s of the proper way in which commodities, I I suppose, can function under socialism um, is then met with a Chinese text about the political economy, uh, as well as uh, two texts about uh, commodities that are voiced by commodities themselves. This form associated very strongly with bourgeois capitalist literatures of the it narrative. So if you could tell us a little bit more about these two approaches to political economy.
1: Right. So, um, so I, I this is sort of, the, in some ways, the, the heart of the book, I guess, in that it really does take the political economic question head on. Um, but I do think it, it works um, in, in with the other chapters. And so far as I'm really interested in political economy as um, something that was meant to be learned and studied by the masses, right? So this isn't sort of political economy for economics majors um, in some stuffy university somewhere. The universities were closed mostly anyway. Right, but the very idea of, like, what is political economy and who should study it um, is in flux in the 60s and 70s. So the period I'm looking at um, is uh, reworking what counts as theory, for example, among other So, within that framework, uh, the texts that I wind up looking at are mostly for a general audience. Um, So, as as you say, there are two within that, there are two buckets of text. So, one is textbooks um that in theory would be used um in more formal class or study session reading group um context. Um and here the the kind of text that's wording it over everybody is the Soviet textbook um that's released uh, in a number of editions, but um, starting um, shortly after um, Stalin makes this official declaration about why there are commodities and how we should understand them, thereby sort of solving the riddle of the Soviet economy. So after that, is codified in the political economic textbook, which is hopefully called Political Economy, a textbook. Um, uh, but that's seriously what it's called. Um, but so that gets translated in um, 55, uh, and then there are subsequent additions. Uh, and then there's this push um as the sign of Soviet split happens um to counter the Soviet textbook with uh, a Chinese Tromgurn text textbook on the same kind of level of establishing political economic orthodoxy. Um, so that happens um, through various iterations um, uh, overseen by people, um, Chinese historians of this era know well, um, including Zhang um in Shanghai. So, out of that, we get this tome um, that uh, is meant to explain what uh, commodities are doing and why they exist uh, in contemporary China. That's our part of the chapter. Um, But... um, it, part of what we see here is that the Chinese textbook comes out at a moment when um, the threat of the commodity and the threat of the veering off towards capitalism during the Cultural Revolution is thought to be extremely high. So um, there's a sense in which, um, again, we need to manage the danger. Manage how, well, one way is to just unmask the, the workings of the commodity, right? So we can sort of steal its power by talking about it, by demystifying it. Um, we can steal its magic um, and so political like, economy becomes not only sort of this abstract thing but it becomes actually a weapon um, against commodity fetishism and the kind of capitalist retrograde power of commodities in general. So from there, you get the other texts, which are way more weird and interesting. Because in this environment that I just described, you would not expect to find um, first-person accounts of materialist um, history and political economy told by commodities, right? So literally um, passages that explain, right, I am a commodity, and these are my origins, according to Marx, right? Um, And this is my family. These are my clan, right? This is what we do, um, operating within this, like, bizarre frame of reference where the whole, the substance of the text, um, is meant to convey that Khmeris are, have no power whatsoever, right? That that's, Thinking that they do that there's some sort of magic is like a problem, right? That precisely the problem that's um, supposed to be countered. So how do we counter it by giving commodities a voice? Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, so they're really weird texts. And I think they um, they present front and center the kind of contradictions, the difficulties of um, trying to articulate um, a vision of a, a kind of neutered commodity, a commodity that's sort of safe for socialists um, engagement and management, um, because it the the attempt is so spectacularly flawed, right? That it just falls apart, doesn't even stand up to its own
0: scrutiny. Yeah, I I really enjoyed this section. Um, of course the it narrative. Um, in. The English tradition, for example, would would be a specific object, um, narrating its own history, um, whereas here we have these abstract commodities. But I have to say, I I felt um, a, a, a especially close to the one that that had such difficulty acknowledging that it articulates its own voice. It was it was very uh, charming in a way uh, to read about this this commodity that is um, so so ashamed of its own commodityness. Yes. Um, So we've reached uh, the one hour mark, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. There are two more chapters, and I wonder if we could maybe talk about them together. Um, We have Remediating the Hero, and then uh, the last chapter of the book, uh, The Model in the Mirror. Um, And I think it it, it might be productive, actually, to talk about them together because they're both, in fact, about uh, remediation and the figure of the model as it moves across various types of media including of course the mirror itself um so however you'd like to to delve into that topic whatever you think is the most compelling example of the problematics of of the model and the remediation of the model and the creation of uh, appropriately socialist bodies
1: mm-hmm. yeah well, i I do think they go together um, quite well they are sort of paired um and the The basic problem with the model um, is one of reproducibility, right? Um, The reproducibility of things um, that both should and should not be reproducible. Um, and, And the kind of um uh, impacts effects of um, being part of a system of der- endless um iterations of a model right um so so chapter five is really about amateur performance of the young bat and she the model plays, um and Uh, looks at sort of performance, theatrical performance as a a technology of transformation that says, okay, through acting like a model, you're actually supposed to become a model, not just on stage, but off stage as well. But that idea has all kinds of um, contradictions within it. Uh, For one thing, it requires in order to produce heroes in this way, you also need to produce villains. Do you really want to produce villains? I mean, maybe they're sort of dialectically useful, but... Um, you don't really normally think like, oh yeah, I want to create class enemies for the sole purpose of vanquishing them. Um, but that's sort of required by the system. So what do you do with that? Um and then the the um the mode of engagement with villains is such that um They exist in our midst, and therefore we had to continuously question and interrogate the very kind of essence of being of everybody around. So um, that chapter wound up being essentially about a a kind of hermeneutics of suspicion that's um, cultivated by. Uh, amateur performance in this way. Uh, chapter six then sort of takes that and says, okay, what uh, it, the mirror is to um, the kind of image economy as the stage is to models in embodied form. Um, and to get these mirrors that have on them decals of models, um, that sets up this situation where again, what do you what are you supposed to see? You see yourself, but you see yourself as model, like the model in the mirror. That's a certain decal and present for an act of comparison and transformation. Um, and, and that winds up for me being a kind of access point to oneself as iterable and reproducible. Um, and ultimately, very much like a commodity, right, Um, and raising all kinds of interesting and thorny questions about subjectivity uh, in a context of endless image reproduction.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And you end your book, uh, with, uh, an articulation, so to speak of the stakes, right. Of this project. Uh, it's not just a project about the remote past, but it's a project that's really trying to understand something about China's present as well. Right. Um, so I, I invite you to, to make the case for our listeners, um, and this will be, this is my second to last question. Um, the next one will involve your next project. So perhaps these two are related, perhaps not. Um, I'd like to hear, yeah, like how, how do you consider this book in terms of um, contemporary commodity cultures in China?
1: Well, so originally, my, this is based on my dissertation. I grew out of it. This was not my original dissertation proposal. Um, This wound up being sort of the book that I wish somebody had already written Um, because what I wanted to talk about was um, contemporary stuff. But I felt like I couldn't do that without someone having written a book on material culture from the Cultural Revolution. So uh, nobody else really done it in a way that spoke to me, so I did it. Um, But ultimately, the way that I feel these two things are interconnected, the past and the present, as it were, um, in this area, it's it's really because the The problem hasn't changed. Um, that is to say, I know we're used to thinking of contemporary China as, you know, capitalist with Chinese characteristics as opposed to socialist with Chinese characteristics um, and with very good reason, don't get me wrong, but the continued sort of lip service or claim to a socialist legacy, I think is worth sort of taking seriously, fondly, as a, a, um, a, a thought experiment, okay? As a sort of um, guide or way into thinking about what is the intersection between um, socialism, whatever that means, and commodity consumption and modernization. And those questions, which obviously were huge in the 80s and 90s, um, and to a certain degree today, right? Um, Surely they should be. Um, Those are the same questions um, that I see at work in the earlier period. Um, and so from that perspective, I think it's really very key for us to grapple with um, the earlier kind of uh, articulation and wrangling of these uh, disparate uh, influences. Um, so that's, and that's sort of where I end the book. Ultimately, um, my next project. are you gonna ask me separately. you, want...
0: you can go ahead. Yeah, oh. I, I I offered the the possibility that it might be related to your conclusion. So,
1: um, it it isn't really. Um, I mean, it, is it isn't. Um, I that there's been um, a fair amount of chit chat. Um, lately about sort of what is um what is socialism? Uh what it, it was it a thing? Um should we even be using the word? Um is it worth it uh, it's baggage? Um these kinds of things. Um and so I I, I I Think it's definitely worth it. Um, just to be clear, uh, but I do think it raises the the very valid question of um, how do we understand how do we get from sort of socialism as an intellectual history problem, right? Like the canonical writings of Marxism Leninism to sort of everyday lived experience under um, socialist regimes, right? Um, Leninist party regimes. So they start, we understand that a gap. And we sort of lived with it or jumped across it without ever really we collectively um, looking at how that process works all that closely so my next project is really about thinking about the um, remaking of theory and epistemology knowledge production um, as a way of mapping out that sort of access, various axes, really, um, from which we get um, to the everyday, I guess, and knit it together with some of these broader trajectories and intellectual history that people are saying, yeah, well, I have no bearing. So that, that just seems wrong to me, but I can't quite say why it seems wrong. Um, So the second book is trying to do that.
0: Well, I look forward to reading it. I'm sure it will be just as enjoyable as this book. Um, One that I must say, um, knowing you personally, you could really hear your voice in. So it was really a pleasure to read for that reason for me. Um, Thank you very much for your time and uh, have a wonderful Friday evening. Thank you.